All right, for those of you who are out there in internet land, we've got the two new projectors. Now, they're not HD yet, and I don't know how it, I don't know if or how it even changes what those of you who are watching live streaming or watching the videos, that doesn't change anything they see. But we've got two new projectors here, and I know some of you may want to put your sunglasses on because they're a little bright. It's, uh, that's just amazing how, how bright that is and how much uh, perspective that gives to the various uh, images and everything. really brings everything out. That's just tremendous. Hmm? That's HD on both? Wow. That's, that's awesome. That's tremendous. All right, just a reminder on two announcements. The first is, or I guess one announcement, and that is the annual church picnic. For Saturday, October the 16th, we'll have sign-up sheets out before long. You can sign up for what you'll bring and pray that it won't rain and we can have a good time and games and fun and visit and all kinds of things and have some good food. And so that comes up on Saturday, October the 16th. The other announcement, did you all hear the good news today? Anybody pay any attention to good news today or any news today? Well, I commented on Tuesday that because of the way the, 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 this bill was written with the funding of everything under the sun, that they wanted to pass it. So the Democrats on the left, the radical Democrats, yielded to the pressure of the, the radical anti-Semitic leftists, AOC and the others. And so they took the $1 billion of U.S. support. Now, that's not all in one year. That's spread out over time for uh, enabling Israel to reload all of their uh, Iron Dome missiles in light of the fighting last, last year, and they need to resupply. And this is purely a defensive uh, uh, mil military weapon. And then when I got home that night, I got word that uh, Steny Hoyer, who's a Democrat who always claims to be, and I believe him that he is very pro-Israel, that he proposed that they would put a stand-alone bill out there today. And that is extremely rare to have. A st I wish they were all standalone bills, but they had a standalone bill uh, to support Israel. And there were only, I think, only nine who voted. There were nine who voted against it, and you can imagine who they were. We now have identified the hardcore anti-Semites, and anti-Israel people in the Democrat Party and in Congress. And so they, there were nine, and then there were two that just voted present. And so it overwhelmingly passed. So we are not as far gone in this nation yet as you might think, because as long as we are a bulwark for Israel and we have their back, then uh, I think that that the Lord's going to bless us to some degree and not totally uh, incinerate us. So we can be thankful, thankful for that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started this evening, let's make sure that we are ready to study the word, and that you can stay awake and focus and concentrate as we dig one last time into this difficult passage, try to pull all the loose ends together uh, before we can move on and wrap up our study. So um, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are our creator and our redeemer, that you are at the helm of the universe. You are in control of history, and you raise up kingdoms and you take down kingdoms. And Father, we know that uh, history is really the outworking of your plan and purposes, and you allow us a measure of freedom. But Father, we also recognize that the depravity of the human heart is such that it will always rebel against you, and the vast numbers of people on this planet will gather together in opposition to you in this dispensation and in the next. And, Father, we know that um, your love and justice and righteousness will be demonstrated in all that, that takes place. Father, we are thankful for the fact that we have some good leaders in Washington who stand for Israel no matter what. And we appreciate their votes today, and we're thankful for them, and we need to let them know we're thankful that they have taken that stand. Father, too, we pray for those who have COVID. There's just a large number of people who are in recovery. I think of Brett Nasworth, and he's back on antibiotics, and he's just struggling to, to really go forward. And we just pray for your healing hand on him and that you'll strengthen his body, give the doctors wisdom, and he'll be able to recover and Father, also we pray for uh, Peggy Ingram and uh, Dan's brother, a sister. And Father, we're just pray for her. She's been very, very ill and at death's door and is slowly recovering, similar case to Brett's. Father, we pray that you would give her doctors wisdom at the VA there and that they would uh, be able to uh, treat her and that she will, she will recover from this, this illness. And I know there are others out there who are dealing with cancer and dealing with other things, and we pray for them. Now, Father, we pray that you'll help us think our way through this passage. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And I was a little disorganized last time because I was coming to see some things in the passage 
that I had not seen before, and so at the last minute I was scrambling to get it all together. Uh, this is one of the few passages where I have really gone through and shown you some of the messiness that occurs in the process of doing exegesis. Sometimes it's pretty simple. Most of what I show you is the result of exegesis. It is not exegesis. But this is a difficult passage. And because it is a passage that is in the Word of God and it is a foundation for our motivation for how we live in this life, it is important for us to understand it and understand it as best we can. And so we will uh, go through this one last time, pulling these, these loose ends together. The main motivation here, I think we have to keep in mind as we look at this, that despite the disagreements that, uh, and the confusion that exists with good men, I mean, I'm, I, I've gone back and forth on this. Mike Stallard said his feet were firmly planted in midair, and I'm not far off, but I do think that, there, that it tips in a certain direction. Verse 11 says, Therefore, since all these things, referring back to uh, the stoicheia, that is the elements, translated as the elements, um, and that the earth and the works will be burned up, since all these things will be dissolved, it says. What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And there's so much written about the verses around that that I think a lot of people miss the significance of that verse. And I think that this is a verse that is saying, therefore, in light of what is said in 10, 12, and 13, you church-age believers need to recognize that an accountability time is coming, and so you need to pay attention to your spiritual life, the way in which you live, that is your holy conduct, it's, at, it's translated, and your God, godliness. Now, as I've been reflecting on this passage, that doesn't seem to be a passage that would be addressed to, to church-age believers if what is being talked about is the end of the millennium and the judgment of the great white throne judgment, which is for unbelievers. This is motivation to believers to live their lives in preparation for the judgments that will come for us. And, of course, church-age believers are judged at the judgment seat of Christ, and tribulation saints will be judged at the end of the tribulation. So we are to be diligent in light of the Lord's coming. So I'm just going to try to summarize things. I've got all the slides in here and all the verses, and we don't have time to read them all and go through them all. But I want to point them out as we go through, and I've tried to organize this better as we think through this passage. This passage begins in verse 3, and it goes down through verse 13. Actually, I have 14 there in the notes, but it's, it's, uh, it's 13. 14 is a conclusion also parallel to 11 that says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things... What is that? The promise for the new heavens and new earth, looking forward to those things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. So both of these exhortations are directed to church-age believers. And why would they be directed to church-age believers if this is talking about an event that occurs 
long, at least a thousand and seven years after we've been raptured and rewarded and given, and we have our resurrection bodies, and for a thousand years we're ruling and reigning with Christ? I think that's an important question that has to be addressed. So we're going to start off context. Context is very important on any passage. I think I've made a lot of a lot of points on that, that we really have to pay a lot of attention to context because a lot of times, even in daily conversation, we use words and language, and our language is extremely idiomatic, and you become sensitive to that if you ever are, are doing public speaking through an interpreter because you realize all of a sudden that you're using sports metaphors and you're using cooking metaphors and you're using all kinds of other idioms that don't translate very well into another another culture, especially if it's not a, a, a Western culture. So we have to look at context to get an idea of what is being said. And there's two realms of context as far as I'm teaching tonight. There's really more. You've got the context, the literary context, what surrounds the passage itself. That's what I mean by narrow passage context number two. And every passage is in a context that has increasingly large concentric circles. So Peter is writing a second epistle to the same group that he, to whom he wrote the first epistle. And this second epistle is therefore written to Jewish background believers. So they have a framework for understanding uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So we start with 10 verses, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. That's in the context of chapter 3. That's in the context of Second Peter. That's in the context of Peter's epistles are Petrine literature, First and Second Peter. If you're really diligent and have the time, that's within the context of Peter's speeches in Acts as well to understand if there's anything there that is relevant to this. That's in the context of the epistles and the New Testament. That's in the context of the whole Bible. So you work your way out. This is, this is how, you, how you do study. And so that takes us from the uh, narrow context to the broad context. So uh, just a reminder, the passage says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And almost every phrase in that verse can be traced back to Old Testament passages. Therefore, since all these things, and I think, as I pointed out last time, refers to what happens to the heavens and the elements, the stoicheia, since all these things will be dissolved, what kind of, what manner of life ought you to, to be in your holy conduct set apart to God, in your sanctification, really? That's what it's talking about. Two words here, your holy conduct, your, your godliness, that both relate to our spiritual life. And then what we should be doing, and that's looking for, and hastening is an, I don't think is a good way to translate that word, but it has the idea of, of, of eagerly anticipating something. 
uh, eagerly anticipating the coming of the day of God. Well, we have day of the Lord in verse 10, day of God here. They seem to be synonymous. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved. So we have this word dissolved used in the English three times in the passage. Actually, they all relate to the same Greek word. I think it's only used dissolved twice, but the Greek word used three times. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's a clear statement of all of the different passages which I yet have had time to get to. In the Old Testament, they talk about the fact that when Christ comes, he sets up a righteous kingdom on the earth. That's the millennial kingdom. And so we're looking for that new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And righteousness is used again and again and again to speak of the millennial kingdom. Of course, it can refer to eternity uh, future after that. But in light of trying to decide where this comes, is this coming at the end of the tribulation and developing into the millennium? Or is this coming at the end of the millennium and going into the uh, eternal state. And those are really the two broad views. The predominant view that you and I have always heard is the view that this occurs at, at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of Revelation chapter 20, and as the there's a creation this is how it's interpreted so we read it that way and at the end of in revelation 20 it says in verse 11 then i saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them now i want you to remember that phrase because we're going to go to a passage isaiah 34 4 and we're going to see the same kind of imagery, but even more. And we have to decide, when is that taking place? And then chapter 21, 1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. We'll get there. Okay, what's the broad biblical context? This is the first area to look at. Well, in terms of the broad biblical context, there's only four places where the phrase new heaven and new earth are used. It's used in Isaiah chapter 65, 17 to 25, where God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. And But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing. Because righteousness grows, or that's part of the context of that lengthy passage. I don't need to read it again. But everybody agrees. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are as a premillennial scholar, pastor, theologian. Everybody agrees that this is talking about the millennium. So this is the first time that phrase is used in the Bible. The second time it's used is in the very next chapter in Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, so shall your descendants and your name remain. So this is a second time it's used, and the clear 
context there is talking about the messianic kingdom and the changes that will take place, that the wolf will lie down with the lamb and a child can put his hand into the cobra's den and not get harmed and all of these things. That's clearly in the messianic kingdom. The last time the passage is the phrase is used is in Revelation 21.1. Now, Isaiah wrote in the 8th century B.C., sometime around 720 to 730 B.C., probably before the northern kingdom went out into discipline, so I'd say in the, around 730 B.C., Peter writes around 63, 64, 65 A.D., the only thing, time, thing that he knows is that new heaven and new earth is referring to the messianic kingdom because John's not going to write for 30 years and by then Peter's going to be in heaven for 25 years or more. So John doesn't write this until afterward. And part of hermeneutics is that when a phrase like kingdom is used, a phrase like the Holy Spirit is used, we've gone through those studies recently, then when we get into the New Testament, the authors aren't saying, okay, well, let me explain this because the Old Testament doesn't give us any background. They just assume the readers of the New Testament understand uh, what the Old Testament is saying. So this is an important issue that I don't think has been addressed well by those who put it at the end of, uh, put Second Peter 3 at the end of the millennium. Second thing, is that you have this word coming. The passage speaks of the parousia. And it's interesting because in verse 4, remember the paragraph starts in verse 3, goes down to verse, uh, actually verse 13 or 14, and verse 12 repeats that word. And that acts like a bracket, at the, and it, it, it shapes the beginning and the end. The second verse from the beginning and the second verse from the end, we have these, this use of this word, where is the promise of his coming? And I pointed out that the word coming is parousia, which is used by Peter in Second Peter 1 to refer to the first advent, to the first coming when Jesus was born. And then in chapter 3, it's used twice, and there it's both, it's the whole context is of this coming. Well, it's very clear that the coming there is the second coming. It's not something that's happening at the end of the millennial kingdom. So that is uh, something that is important to take into consideration. So I'm going to build a chart for us to help us understand this. What we have are the two views. View number one, the one we're familiar with, the one we've always heard, is the view that this is talking about a recreation, creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing, and it comes at the end of the millennium. The other view is that this is a renewal view. It's not coming at the end of the millennium. It's coming at the end of the tribulation. And all of the people that hold to this, these views are dispensationalists. Many of them are older dispensationalists, but there's a lot of contemporary dispensationalists I'm discovering that have also held this view, but it's a minority, minority view. So the first issue in the text, Second Peter 3.10, that we looked at was, what does this phrase, the day of the Lord, mean? 
but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And again, this is a highly debated, controversial term. You have seen, and I put this up several times, that there are various views held by the dispensational giants. Schofield thought it began with the second coming. Doesn't include the tribulation at all. It's not for him. It's not even. It's not judgment, or, or just at the end of the tribulation, and it goes all the way through to the to the uh, great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium. Then you have others, and this becomes sort of the standard Dallas Seminary position, that the day of the Lord starts after the rapture and goes all the way through to the end of the millennium. That's a thousand and seven years. The second coming, or the end of the millennium, uh, view is held by Dick Mayhew and... Uh, some others, their view is that, that you, it's all judgment. There's no blessing. And so you have judgment at the end of the tribulation and judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. And it's interesting because Mayhew is like John MacArthur's right-hand guy. He's the guy, even though MacArthur is the titulary head of, of Master Seminary, Dick Mayhew is, I'm not sure his exact title, but he's really the guy who runs the seminary. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the day of the Lord. And I have seen various versions of his, of a paper that he has done on the day of the Lord in at least five different publications over the last, that were published from 1980 to about 2010. And a lot of people say that this, this is good, but he says there's, it, it doesn't include blessing, and it's just at the end of the tribulation and just at the end of the millennium. Well, what's your support for it being at the end of the millennium? Well, that's Second Peter 3. Well, there you get into a circular argument because you're saying that it, why, why do you say Second Peter 3 is at the end of the millennium? Well, because it, it, it has to be because the, it, there's a day of the Lord at the end of the millennium. Well, how do you know that? Well, there's a judgment at the end of the millennium. But there, we went through all the passages, and there's not a single clear passage from the Old Testament that would put that at the end of the millennium. And as far as I could tell, there's not a single passage in the Old Testament that talks about 900 and probably 995 years of the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. It all seems to relate to the judgments that occur during the tribulation period. But I'm open to be corrected on that. Uh, third point is that this is, uh, oh, fourth point is it's only in the tribulation. That's Arnold Fruchtenbaum's view. And then the last point, that's kind of a really strange view. Barbier is the only one. Um, he says it could either refer to the rapture or the second coming. I, I, but I put that there because that's, that's, a, that's, that's a view that's out there. So what is the day of the Lord? We looked at the passages. Amos says it's a time of darkness and not light. It's a time of divine judgment, a time when God directly shows up in history to bring judgment. The flip side of that coin of judgment is that the judgment is designed to purify the earth for the establishment of the messianic kingdom. So it ends with the enthronement of the messianic king and the earth has been purified at the end of the tribulation. Now that's true no matter what else other view you take, but that's what's going on there.
Then I pointed out last time, you not only have the phrase the day of the Lord, but you have this other phrase as a thief in the night, which is a metaphor for something coming very suddenly and unexpectedly. And so this phrase is used in a number of passages in Matthew 24, 43. Um, I think that second reference should be to Luke 12, 39, not Matthew 12, 39. It's Luke 12, 39, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 4, and Revelation 3, 3, and 16, 15. Um, I'm a little uncertain on how those exactly fit. But when you combine these two terms, day of the Lord and thief in the night, they refer to the second coming. Matthew 24 is all of 24 is talking about the second coming. That's the question his disciples ask. What are the signs of your coming? And, the re- and that sets the tone for the whole thing. And Jesus says after he goes through the seven years of the tribulation and he's coming up on the end and his appearance, he said, watch therefore for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, a lot of people think, well, we can be pretty sure because of Daniel's 70th week. We know it's seven years. We can be pretty sure this has got to be the rapture. But that's just reading something into the passage that has nothing to do with the context. And verse 43, Jesus said, But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So he warns that even at the end of the tribulation, the people on the earth are in darkness, and they don't know anything about the Bible or the timelines or anything, and they're not going to expect what's going to happen. Luke 12, 39 is a parallel passage you don't <coughs> to what we just read. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 says, For you yourselves know... Uh, perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Well, this is clearly talking about the second coming and the, and the tribulation. So all of these passages, Revelation 3.3, 3, warning that the, the, the church that if you don't that you need to change and if you don't watch I'll come upon you as a thief he'll come, it's a surprise judgment I don't think that's coming that's the second coming that he's talking about it's just talking about the surprise of the coming but revelation 16:15 uh, is coming later in in revelation and it is talking about the warning of his coming at the end behold I'm coming as a thief blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So what we see then is the day of the Lord in the recreation or the ex nihilo recreation is comprised of the full thousand and seven years of the tribulation plus the millennial kingdom. In the renewal view, the terms day of the Lord, thief in the night only refer to the tribulation and are not terms that refer to the millennial kingdom. So on these broad contextual issues, everything seems to point to what we're talking about is something that happens at the end of the tribulation or at the beginning of the millennium to establish the kingdom. Then we're going to look at key words because the words that are used here have a range of meaning and they can mean uh, a number of things. And so you can translate them into English one way, 
and it sounds like it's a fiery uh, a fiery annihilation of everything in the universe and God starts all over again. Or you can translate them legitimately another way and he's, he's not destroying everything. It's just picking up on the me- numerous metaphors of the coming of the Messiah in fiery judgment to purify and cleanse uh, the, the universe and the earth. So we have this phrase, will pass away, heavens will pass away. Well, if we just take it that way, we think, well, that means that it's gone completely and there's just nothing left. Remember, the heavens are a space-time box. It's not, the universe is not infinite, it's finite. So it's a, it's a box that is filled with stars and galaxies and planets and everything. And destroying the universe, the heavens and the earth, doesn't just mean destroying what's in the box, but everything. And then recreating everything ex nihilo, like we have Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. So what does this word actually mean? And I pointed out it's used a number of places. It's par erkomai, which means to pass by or pass away. It means to go past a reference point. The third meaning is to come to an end and so no longer be there or the sense of passing from one stage to another. You have passed out of high school. That doesn't mean that all that destroyed. You've just gone from one stage to another. You passed from third grade to fourth grade. You know, it's still there. Third grade's still there, but you, you're moving to the next next stage. That's, that's the word that you would use. Michael Svigel in his article in Bib Sack, reminding you that he's a, a current professor in theology at Dallas Seminary, says that the terms translated to pass away do not mean to be annihilated. The terms are neutral, referring simply to going away or departing. One of these terms, par erkamai, refers to the old things of the believer's life that have passed away, 2 Corinthians 5.17 which we'll look at in a second, drawing similarly on new creation imagery and implying a remolding of a person's life and character, not an annihilation of the old and replacement by the new. Therefore, if any man, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. But we still struggle with who we were before we were saved. That's what Paul deals with in passages like Ephesians 4 and Colossians uh, chapter 3 is that we, the old, he says, you're new, but you have to live like a new man. Uh, the, the old things have not been totally destroyed. In verse 18, 518, he says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through the Jesus Christ. So these, these are the all things. So it indicates a total replacement, but not. But it's not replacing the sin nature. Not, uh, the old man is gone, uh, but there's no annihilation. We still look the same, have the same mortal body. We still have the same uh, uh, sin nature, but something new has been added, and we're we're made alive again. Ray Bowman, in his book on the kingdom of God, visualized states that it never means annihilated but to pass over from one position in time or space to another position 
Matthew 5.18, when Jesus says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, in both places where it says heaven and earth will pass away, and by and the law no jot or tittle will pass, it's using the same word, par erkamai. Now, if we just look at the second one where it says the not one jot or tittle will will by no means pass from the law until it is fulfilled, is the law going to be annihilated? No. That was a stage in the in dispensation, and the Torah, which is what he's referring to here, is the Hebrew scriptures are still there, but they are they need have to be fulfilled. They will not be annihilated. They will we will move from one stage to another. Now, when we look at this passage, we also see that there are these statements about that the heavens will pass away. And in Second um, Peter 3, 10, it says, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And what I said last time, I think this is a, real, a, a very strong hermeneutical point is that these two clauses are parallel, synonymously parallel to one another. So that to understand what stoicheia means, this word for elements, we have to understand what the heavens will be. And this is where you have, a, in some ways, a legitimate divergence in interpretation. So those who think the physical elements, the physical universe is going to be annihilated, will say that the word stoicheia means the physical bodies in the universe, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, all of those, the, the, the term stoicheia refers to that, which is one of three basic meanings that that word has. And so that's a legitimate translation of that. And so uh, I pointed out last time that you have this word stoicheia in two places parallel to uh, heavens will pass away, and I pose the question, what if heaven is just a synonym for elements in this synonymous parallelism? And then I put it down there at the bottom of the screen in a parallel uh, structure where the heavens is parallel to elements, will pass away is synonymous with will melt, with a great noise is synonymous to with fervent heat. So to answer that, we look at this phrase, well, what does it mean by heaven? The Bible talks about the fact that there are three heavens. The third heaven is the throne room of God. The second heaven is that which comprises all of the universe, the solar system, the galaxies, the planets, everything. But the first and the first uh, the uh, first heaven is the atmosphere around around the earth, and it's used in each of those contexts in the scripture. But when it speaks of the second heaven, that is the stars and the sun, the moon, the galaxies, the physical bodies that are there, is it talking using it as a figure of speech for the? Uh, are, is it talking about those literal stars, sun, moon, and bodies, or is it talking about 
the inhabitants of the heavens, using the word heavens as a figure of speech. And we went through a lot of passages, I'll put them up here in a minute, that where that's used that way in the Old Testament. It's when, when Moses calls upon the heavens and the earth to witness the covenant that God is making with Israel, he's not talking about the inanimate physical bodies, the celestial spheres in the heavens. He's talking about those who indwell the heavens and who are the ones who indwell the heavens. That's the angels, the spirits. And this word storkeia has as one of its three basic meanings the elemental spirits that control the universe. So that would be in biblical theology referring to the angels and and or the demons. So one of the, as I point out in this slide, one of the three options for the reference to elements is the angels or demons in the heavens. We have passages like Deuteronomy 4.26, which I just mentioned. Uh, Moses says, I call upon heaven and earth to witness against you this day. Deuteronomy 30.19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses. Inanimate bodies, solid celestial bodies, and the inanimate earth cannot witness anything. So we're not talking about these inanimate physical objects. It has to be those who are there. That's so heavens equals the inhabitants of the heavens, earth the inhabitants of the earth, standard Hebrew idiom. So here's a slide on Sarkeia, the three basic meanings. It's the elements of the structure of the universe, earth, air, fire, or earth, water, air, and fire. Second, it's the basic components of anything. Third, it's the heavenly bodies or um, the elemental, the fourth meaning is the elemental uh, transcendent powers that are in control of the events of the world. Now, those are the four meanings that are listed in just about every lexicon that I looked up. But the first one, it, it amazes me how many Christian theologians default to that, that that's what they're referring to. And that comes out of Greek philosophy, and I don't, I don't really think that it refers to that. They're not justifying the fact that uh, people like Thales and Heraclitus and Parmenides all had an understanding that the basic elements... I mean, you, learned, you and I learned a lot more in the elements elemental element charts of elements that periodic chart that we learned in high school or junior high school and back then they thought well the elements are basically you know earth and fire and water and air so i don't think that really fits anything i would disagree with that but it non but it does it has this idea of the transcendental powers and the way it's translated is confusing i didn't put these verses up on the screen last time, but I think it's important to look at at them. In Galatians 4, 8, and 9 we read, but then indeed when you did not know God, so Paul is talking to these Galatian believers, and when you were an unbeliever, what did you believe? He said, you served those which by nature are not gods. Now what does that language remind you of? Well, that reminds you a lot about the language we read about serving idols in Judges. 
And that's what he's talking about, serving these false gods. So the context is saying you served these who are not truly gods. You're worshiping these idols. But Scripture says there's demons behind those, those idols. Verse 9, he says, but now... After you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again? See, you're going, when he says turn again, he's not talking about turning to something else new, but going back to something you were already worshiping. You turn again to the weak and spiritually impotent. See, it's stoicheia, so I'm expanding the translation here. You're turning again to the spiritually impotent elemental spirits, which we call demons. So see, that that makes perfect sense now in the context of verses 8 and 9. In Colossians 2.8, you have much the same thing. Paul is warning the Colossians against those who will come in to try to deceive them and to steal them away lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men and according to the stoicheia. Well, if you translate it according to the elemental spirits or the demons that are influencing the world system, that makes a lot more sense in this context. The elemental spirits of the cosmic system, the demons, and not according to Christ. God or Christ, I mean, God or the devil. These are the two options we have. Now, here's an interesting verse to put into the middle of this. In Isaiah 34, 4, it says, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll, all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit is falling from a fig tree. Now, if you just looked at that verse out of context, when would you think that was taking place? Well, first of all, you see, it it, it seems to be somewhat hyperbolic and has uh, using figurative language. But the context goes on to say, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now, when does that take place? That is a description of what happens in the campaign of Armageddon when in uh, Basra, which is over near Petra, when the Jews escape from uh, the Jews that listen to Jesus, so they're, they're Messianic believers, and Jesus said, when you see these signs, the sign of the abomination of desolation, flee to the, to the mountains don't go back for anything. Just flee to the mountains. And they flee down across the uh, wilderness of, Jude, uh, of Judah and across the um, Arabah south of the Dead Sea over into Jordan and into that rugged 
uh, land over there around Petra where God is going to protect him. And Jesus returns when they call upon him there. That's the remnant that survives. There are other pockets of saved Jews, still some in Jerusalem and some in, uh, outside of the land. But when they call upon the name of the Lord, that's what Jesus said. You won't see me until I come, you, you, until you call upon me uh, to come at, in, in the name of the Lord. And so he returns there and defeats the armies of the Antichrist that are seek, seeking to annihilate the Jews that are there. And then he will lead them from there to Jerusalem. So this context where, where it talks about the host of heaven shall be dissolved. What does that language sound like? The English sounds a lot like the language of Second Peter 3. Uh, 10 to 13, the, word, the Greek word, I mean, excuse me, Hebrew word that's translated uh, dissolved is the word makak, which means to decay or to rot or to fester. It is not translated by any of the words that are used in Second Peter 3, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not talking about the same thing. That's, that's not always true that uh, an Old Testament a Greek word that's used in the Septuagint is going to be used again in the New Testament. So that's what's going on here. And uh, Isaiah twenty four twenty one, it shall come, a pa- come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones. Now, who's this talking about? Punish on high the host of exalted ones and on earth the kings of the earth. So those who are on high, the exalted ones, are the, are the demonic leaders, the principalities and powers, Satan and all of the ranks of the demons. They will be gathered together as prisoners or gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days, they will be punished. So what's this talking about? They're going to be put in the abyss with Satan. And after the thousand years, they'll be released and then they will be defeated and sent to the lake of fire. So this is what's going on here. The host of heaven is not the planets and the stars. It's talking about the demons. And that this is the, that what happens in this event, it just reverberates through the whole universe. And it's, it's explosive. Not in a literal sense. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.19, uh, we have these other passages. Take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them. And in, verse, in Deuteronomy 17.3, it identifies this host of heaven are these other gods that you worship, either the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven. These are these demons that have fallen. First Kings talk about them, all the host of heaven standing by in heaven worshiping God. So host of heaven is not talking about the physical objects in the sky. Nehemiah 9, 6 talks about these, the host of heaven worships God. So these would be the elect angels. So Second Peter three ten then says that these elements will melt. Well, the word luo doesn't mean melt. That's the word that's used there. It can mean something that is uh, that is destroyed. It's used that way in John 2.19 when Jesus answered and said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up. 
So when he uses luo, he doesn't mean annihilation. He means that it's destroyed or it's, or it's killed. So if we translate 2 Peter 3.10, not will melt with fervent heat, but will be, uh, will be destroyed with fervent heat. Now we'll come back and look at how many passages there are that describe that the, at the coming of Messiah, he is going to come with fiery judgment on all the earth. And, it, and you have these terms for fire and being burned up used in all of these different passages. The word for heat there, it will be uh, destroyed with fervent heat. And this is a word that means to be on fire, to burn intensely. So that would be a word that could use on either side to justify their position. But when we come to the last word, that it will be burned up, I made the point last time that that word is not in the text. What I worked on today was realizing that this word uh, is in the critical te- uh, critical text, which was what I was looking at. I wasn't looking at a majority text. I was looking at the critical text, and the critical text has a different word. It has a word that means uh, simply to destroy. But in the King James and New King James, based on the majority text, which I usually go with, it has a, a word that means to burn up, to be on fire. And so it is katakayo, and it has that sense. So if we're going to summarize this, we'd say on the left-hand side, the context doesn't support an end of the millennium view. Uh, but if day of the Lord refers to a thousand and seven years, then that would support their view that this at the end of the tri- uh, end of the millennium. Uh, there are certain key words that could be translated, like stoicheia, could refer to the physical objects in the heavens and the universe. Or it could refer to the fallen angels or the demons. So you have to understand these words contextually. Uh, Three ten will be burned up. Is in the is in the. Excuse me, I got these reversed. It's in the majority text, and will be exposed. Is in the critical text. So I need to correct that bar. 2 Peter 3.10, so it goes on, and this is my translation. Several people asked me last time, give me your translation of this because it gets confusing. So this is my translation of 3.10. Now the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the, then I put brackets in there for explanation, in which the inhabitants of the heavens will pass away with the great noise. They're going to be sent to the abyss. And the fallen angelic host will be destroyed with intense heat. They they are not annihilated because they continue to live. But they are in the abyss and then in the lake of fire. And the earth and the works in it will be exposed. So that would be the way someone who held to the renewal view would, would translate the passage. If you take the annihilation view, you translate it something like this. 
Now the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the physical objects in the heavens will be annihilated with a great noise and the physical elements of the universe will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and the works in it will be burned up. Now, there's a lot of passages that speak of fiery judgment at the coming of the Messiah. You have Malachi 3, uh, 2 through 4, that when the Messiah comes, the day of his coming, he's like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner in a purifier of silver. You have uh, passages that talk about enormous topographical changes that take place, that, that there's uh, earthquakes that take place at the end of the tribulation, and so there's a, an elevated mountain that becomes the highest point, and that's where the temple of the Lord will be in Isaiah uh, 2, 2. In Isaiah 43 through 5, we read, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And so this is, again, talking about uh, the, the topographical changes in, the, in Israel. Uh, Zechariah 14, 4 through 5, the Mount of Olives is split, and there's going to be a river that comes out that part of it goes to the Dead Sea and freshens the Dead Sea, making it alive, and the other branch will go to the Mediterranean. You have passages like Zechariah 14, 8, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Nahum 1.5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. That's second coming. We have that same melting language in Second Peter 3. Amos 1.2 says, the Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice, the pastures of the sheep mourn, and the top of Carmel, Mount Carmel, the highest point in Israel, withers. Micah 1, 4, the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split like wax before fire. So this all can fit the language of 2 Peter 3 describing the second coming. Isaiah 2 talks about the, uh, the leaders, kings of the earth hiding in the caves, uh, hiding in the clefts of the rock. Isaiah eleven fifteen changes the topography of the... Uh, Red Sea, Isaiah 13, 13, God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place. That's pretty phenomenal. That is at the second coming. That's with, uh, at the time he destroys Babylon. Ezekiel thirty-eight twenty: the mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. Joel three sixteen. Uh, the Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth will shake. This is related to judgment. Uh, Nahum 2.10, the heart melts and the knees shake. So all of this language, Amos 9.5, the uh, Lord God touches the earth and it melts and all those who dwell there mourn. Haggai 2.6, once more I will shake heaven and earth to sea and dry land. Matthew 24.29 to 30, uh, Jesus describes this. He says, uh, he talks about the sun darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens. That would re probably refer to demonic forces. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Ezekiel 22.20, 20, uh, this describes a judgment in history. And that that judgment is compared to the gathering of metals uh, in the midst of a furnace and blowing fire on it to melt it. That describes a judgment coming on Jerusalem. Uh, 
Psalm 46, 6, nations raged, God uttered his voice, and the earth melted. Psalm 75, 3, the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. None of these are talking about the end of the millennial kingdom. They're all talking about judgments in history. Then we, I'll skip that one. Then we get to Isaiah 66, 15, which is in the context of the new heavens and the new earth and the millennium. He says, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord will be many. This is at, at the battle of Armageddon. Isaiah ten seventeen. so the Lord of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 29, 6, you'll be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. That's like Isaiah 34, 4. This is all talking about judgments at the end of the tribulation. So in verse 11, Peter says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, all these things refers back to the stoicheia and the heavens. And I think it's talking about the destruction of the demonic powers. Since all these things will be dissolved or destroyed, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct? So we must ask the question. These passages, these descriptions are directed to church-age believers to motivate them to spiritual growth and maturity. If this is talking about a return at the end of the millennium, when we have already been raptured, rewarded, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, what impact would that have on how we live our life today? It doesn't seem that that fits, but there are numerous passages in the New Testament that tell us to live our life a certain way because Christ is coming. It's not talking about the end of the millennium. Second Peter 3.10 then, um, translating it as the elemental st- spirits will be destroyed with fire. And then uh, 3.11 Therefore, since all these things, that is, in the plural, all the, these elemental spirits and the inhabitants of the heavens, what manner of people ought we to be? Verse 12 goes on to say, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, can we speed up the coming of Christ at the second coming? Can we speed up the coming, the end of the millennium? No, we can't speed those things up. That's why I said this is not a good translation. The Greek word is spudo. It is a cognate of another word we've studied in Ephesians 4, 4, spudazo, which means to be diligent or eager about something. But spudo has several meanings listed in uh, the main uh, lexicon, bdag, to be in a hurry, We can't hurry up the coming of the day of God to cause something to happen or come into being by exercising a special effort. I don't think that fits. That's where they think that this word fits. Verse 3 says, to be very interested in discharging an obligation, to be zealous, to exert oneself. That's where it comes close to the meaning of spudazo, to exert yourself, to be diligent, to uh, be industrious. 
But in the Liddell Scott Jones lexicon, which is the lexicon for Greek, not only classic but also Koine Greek, it lists a different meaning, the meaning of to seek eagerly and to strive after something. And I think that fits the context. We are looking for and eagerly seek the coming of the Lord. We anticipate that. And so that is what this is talking about, that because we look forward to this and because we eagerly seek it, then we are to live a certain way. And that's what's in verse 11. Verse 12 says that we are seeking the coming of the day of God, which is related to the day of the Lord, because of which the inhabitants of the angels, as I would translate that, relates to fallen angels, will be destroyed. They'll be judged. They'll be sent to the abyss. And we saw a couple of passages in Isaiah that are quite uh, uh, quite harsh in their descriptions of the fallen angels. Uh, they will be destroyed being on fire. That was in the Isaiah passage and the elements, which I think stoicheia again, this is referring to those elemental spirits, the fallen angels, will will melt with fervent heat. Isaiah 34, 4 fits all of this. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved or destroyed, and the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down, and the leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falls from a fig tree. So what we see here is this phrase, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat that this refers to the destruction of the uh, those spirits that inhabit it, not the literal bodies in the heavens, but those who inhabit it. And so we are to watch for and earnestly expect the coming day of God, and the coming there is parousia, which I think refers to the second coming, not the end of the millennium. It's the only time it's used, so it's hard to pin that down, but it must be a synonym of day of the Lord. Second Peter 3.13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we're running out of time, but I've gone over this before, that these two terms, they're two words for new in the Greek. The word naos which Trench says is new in time or quantity. I know that's abstract, difficult to understand, but I'm just wanting to put the, the idea out there that that word naos, which is not used in the passage, is what he calls quantitative. Qualitative is the word that we have, which is kainos. And in fact, what he talks about in several passages, it's not only quantity, but also quality. And that's what distinguish, distinguishes it. And this is brought out in the um, Greg Beale in his commentary on Revelation says that it, it kainos denotes the qualitatively new as compared with what has existed until now. Uh, whereas naos is used temporally for that which has not yet been. And I'm just pointing this out to show the documentation. This is from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. Kainos denotes that which is new in its own way. And it, in secular usage in the second paragraph, it denotes that which is qualitatively new. So when we look at our chart here, we have naos, which would fit this view, but it's not in the text. 
and that indicates a quantitative idea. But the qualitative idea is kainos, and that would fit, and that's the view that's used here. And this is what Michael Spiegel says. The new creation will be not merely qualitatively different, but quantitatively different. Did I get those reversed again? Maybe I did. Anyway, that brings us to the end. I need to check that, that one more time. But so what we see here at the very least is that both of these views have arguments in their favor. Both of them have views, have arguments that are not in their favor. But it seems to me that when we look at the whole chart, that there are more things from the context to the use of language to the use of kainos rather than neos and looking at many of the Old Testament descriptions of fiery judgment at the coming of the Messiah at the end of the tribulation, that all of these fit better than, than putting this at the end of the millennial kingdom. But it's a difficult passage. And as I pointed out before, there are a lot of really good scholars who would disagree uh, and I disagreed with this for many, many years until I finally had the time to sit down and just just work my way through all of the different different issues. And I think that it has it has legs, and I think that it's probably, if I were to choose one, I would say it's probably the more likely due to all of it has more factors in its favor than the other view. But it's not like it's an overwhelming difference. So that brings us to the last paragraph in the book, 14 through uh, 18. And one of my favorite verses is the last verse in Second Peter, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Next time we'll come back and we'll probably wrap up uh, that, that section we're also going to have a guest come next time who has been a missionary for the last uh, 25 years or so. His name is Scott Ulrich. I first knew of him when he was just a little kid, and he was a camper at Camp Anile when I was a uh, counselor, and he married a girl. I probably knew her or of her, recognized her more than him, uh, his wife's name is Robin. They were on the mission field in Bulgaria for about 16 years. And so he's going to come and give us a report about what is going on in Bulgaria and how the Lord's working there, as well as what he's doing now, which is they went with a different mission organization. So he travels a lot and he does short-term uh, teaching assignments. But he... Um, uh, they, he went to Dallas Seminary. He was in the same class at Dallas Seminary as uh, Bruce Mumgardner, and they were good friends. And Bruce told me about him and said, you know, you ought to have Scott fill in for you. He lives out there in Katy, and, you know, he's got the same theology we do. And then two or three years ago, uh, Bob Bolander in Austin said that he had used Scott several times. When I was up at a reunion at Camp Penile about uh, over Labor Day, I got another good report from a couple of people who regularly listen to me and said, yeah, Scott, just right down the line. He just real good, solid presentation. So he's going to 
come next week so we can get to know him a little bit. And then when I go on vacation two or three weeks later, then he's going to cover for me on Sunday morning. So that'll be an opportunity for us to get to know get to know him a little bit. Doug Petrovich is going to come on the Tuesday and Thursday nights that I'm gone. And um, I'll be gone September, I mean, October 17th to the 24th. So on that Tuesday and Thursday night of that week, Doug will be here. And then on that Sunday, uh, Scott will be here. And uh, it's it's good to, you know, I've had a little trouble finding good people who can uh, fill in and cover when I'm gone that have some experience and knowledge. So I'm looking forward to, to hearing Scott. And uh, we've had some good conversations the last few weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. So I hope you are too. Father, thank you for this time. We've had to look at your word this evening and to study these things. And we pray that uh, you can help us sort through a complex passage. But we know that one way or the other that you're coming back and that we are to be prepared for it in our own spiritual lives, walking consistently with you. And we pray that we might take courage from what the Word teaches us in the midst of these confusing and chaotic days, and that, that we might not get our eyes on the ebb and flow of the devil's world, but we might focus on you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.